Thanks for listening to the Women Emerging podcast. Every week we put up a new episode with insights into leadership, practical leadership, seen through the eyes of women leaders of all ages and all sectors from right across the world. Our aim is for women to be able to say, if that's leadership, I'm in. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and join Women Emerging on our website, womenemerging.org. That's womenemerging.org for more fabulous free leadership content. Welcome, welcome. Julie Middleton here, Director of Women Emerging and your podcast host. This week, Manisha is going to talk to us about the five objects she's chosen that will illustrate the five moments of learning for her in terms of leadership and leading. She's going to talk about inclusivity, not not in that sort of ease of the use of the word, but in terms of the hard learning she's put in to really understand some of the issues around inclusivity. Her her objects that she's chosen are a microphone, and that's really about something that she and I share, dyslexia, and and what she's learnt through that. The second one is a steering wheel, which I'll leave her to explain, but you know that moment when you're driving from work back home, guilty about leaving work and guilty about not being back home earlier and trying to transition in your head and then realising that nobody else in the car seems to be particularly worried about this. (laughs) And then she's going to talk about her, her third object, which is a spray can of paint. And that that was fascinating to me about how homeschooling caused her to meet people that she would not normally meet and learnt a lot about inclusivity as a result. And then she can talk about playgrounds because they are extraordinary places and what she's learnt from playgrounds and what they've taught her about leadership. And then because Manisha is Manisha, she's going to bravely talk about a complaint letter that came to her about her. Something that most leaders don't talk about. But she's going to talk about that complaint letter about her and its impact on her and its impact on how she leads. So have a listen. I think it was fascinating. Let's start with one of my favorites. Let's start with the microphone. Why is the microphone one of your objects? So I'm going to start when I was at school and I was in sixth grade. And here in Australia, sixth grade is the last year before you go to high school. And I remember my grade teacher taking me aside and saying to me, oh, look, unless you learn to spell, we're going to have to hold you back. I was very, very lucky because I could read really well. And I had a really great creative imagination. And I happened to 
from first in English that year. Um, and so I was allowed to move to the next grade. But what I hadn't realised was this, this thing that I couldn't spell, that I struggled with time, that I needed mnemonics to remember anything, was going to follow me for the rest of my life. And as I became a junior marketer, um, the stakes were really high around getting words correct. And I would sit in um, at work and I'd take my work home. I'd work really fast through the day and I'd take my work home and then I'd redo everything with a black pen in front of me and mark off every word because this was a time before spell check and made sure that it was right before I went to work and pretended I'd, I'd not done any of that. And I lost lots of jobs because of this because I'd go for interviews and they'd ask me what my, you know, challenges were. And I'd say, well, I don't do time. I don't do zeros. I get tens and hundreds mixed up, even though I'm great at abstract maths and I can't spell. And inevitably they'd say, oh, no, no, that's kind of important here. Until I met a fantastic man who said, I'm not hiring you, Manisha, for your spelling. I'm hiring you for your strategic brain. And I have an EA. She can manage your spelling. And I realised that what he saw as my strengths was what he wanted me to do as a leader and that, in fact, he wasn't worrying so much about what I couldn't do and he was happy to supplement that in order to build on what I did have and the strengths that I did bring, which were pattern thinking and strategic thinking and innovative ideas for solutions. And then technology came around and the reason my first item is a microphone button is now I can press a button on my phone or on my computer screen, and I can speak just as we are today, and the computer does the work for me. And all of a sudden, humans around me are far more forgiving of my inability to spell. And one of the most, um, I think, the things that I've realised is as my team becomes more forgiving of this, my cognitive load has gone down. And I've realized how much time I've spent in my life trying to be perfect and trying to be the leader or the person that I felt was needed in order to keep my job and to be accepting and accepted. And I've realized that the best way for me to be accepting is to learn about other people's strengths and actually to help to augment where those challenges are rather than trying to get everyone to work to some mediocre playing field where their best strengths are pushed down so that their weaknesses can be pushed up. And that must have fundamentally changed how you lead. Totally. Totally. It's also helped me to understand that I don't have to be perfectly perfect to be a good leader and that the people around me are seeing the skills that I bring to the table in a different way. I think the old school style of leadership is as leaders, we had to exemplify what we wanted our teams to be. I think the inclusive way to lead is to recognise our own our power, but also our strengths and how they differ from those of the other people around the table and how all of those skills together are greater, you know, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. It's a very simple one, isn't it? But uh, it's incredibly sad that you meet so many people who just don't get that. Well, we've been trained not to think that way, right? Like, 
think about our teachers. If a teacher didn't do, if a teacher was in a class and said, actually, I don't know, or, you know, I'm really confused, we've been taught to not believe them for other things. We've taught, been taught that if there's a, a bad reference on a document, that must mean that the whole document is incorrect. We've worked in binaries for a really long time. The next object is a car steering wheel, and I have been trying to figure out how that could possibly teach you to be a leader. Go for it. So you can imagine I'm sitting in my car and I'm deeply stressed. And the reason I'm stressed is because it's 6 p.m. in the afternoon and I'm on my way home from work and I promised my partner that I would be home by 6 so that I could take over childcare duties for our then two-year-old child. And I was completely conflicted because I was angry that I hadn't been good at work and I hadn't done as much as I should have because I'd had to leave so fast in order to get home in time. And I hadn't left fast enough, so I was stuck in traffic. And I also felt like a really terrible mother because I hadn't been home by six o'clock as I'd wanted to be. And I called my husband who said it was fine. He was happy to keep looking after our child. But the added pressure was that my son was adopted and we had him when he was seven months old. And I remember from the very beginning, everyone was so excited about us having a child, so was I. But what I realized very quickly was that I hated looking after a child every night. I loved him. I loved being a mother, but I wasn't cut out to be at home every day, all day with a little child. I suffered from sleep deprivation. I struggled by not talking to people who had the same interests and passions as I did. And I realized that there was this real mythology around motherhood and what we could say and what we couldn't say. We put these pressures on ourselves to be everything, to be the carer, to be the great mother, to actually be present at work. That car steering wheel in that moment really brought this home to me and it brought up to me even more because I looked around me and the other people in the cars didn't seem to be as worked up or as stressed as I was. And I started thinking about whether this was just about me. And I realized as I talked to people, especially younger women in the organization I worked in at the time, that this idea that we had to be parents, that we had to be mothers, and that we had to be great at our work and we could do all of that at the same time was really a pervasive mythology. And how did that steering wheel actually change you when, you know, you became a leader? Look, it's, it's got me to really stop judging other people, for one thing. It also allowed me to have different conversations with people. So when I found myself in meetings a lot, especially when I was working with younger people who would be worried about, you know, family, whether they were going to have children or not. They were worried about IVF. They were worried about reproductive health, all sorts of other issues that we don't necessarily think of as workplace issues, but really do impact on our workplaces and, and spaces. Um, that all of a sudden we were having those conversations and I was more open to have those conversations, not in terms of knowing people's secrets, but in terms of how it related to work. And so all of a sudden we were having those conversations with a little bit more compassion, 
but also pragmatism. What does this mean for the day? Does it actually, if you have to leave work at, you know, quarter to five, which is what I needed to do, let's make sure that there are no meetings that happen that, you know, that start after four o'clock because they're going to run over. So how do we actually restructure what we're doing just to make it easier for people to be the best that they can be at work? That leads quite nicely into your third object, doesn't it? The spray cap. Yes. So as I mentioned, I have an incredible young person in my life who struggled a lot at school. And, you know, when we think about places like schools, someone who found school reasonably enjoyable, a place I could thrive in, having someone in my life who really couldn't thrive in that space was really fantastic because it allowed me to see how systems sometimes conspire against people. And this young person of mine ended up homeschooling. And I mean real homeschooling, not COVID homeschooling. And so what we did was we actually went for the first few months, you can do what you like. And he wanted to be a bit of a graffiti artist. So we got the spray cans and he sprayed the walls in his room. And he sprayed those walls with some pretty um, big statements. Um, Statements that I was pretty embarrassed about, actually, when it came to having people in our house. But as part of that homeschooling process, I was fortunate enough to meet with other homeschoolers. And in Australia, you know, homeschooling is different in different parts of the world. But the people I met with were people who didn't feel that school was suitable for them or their children because of religion, because of health-based rules, because of diversity. And I remember these three women coming into the house, one of them who was, you know, deeply within their faith, another person who happened to be an anti-vaxxer, another person who, you know, had a very disruptive young person in their lives, walking upstairs, looking at that wall, And they went, wow, isn't that amazing that your young person has had the freedom to actually express themselves. It must be so great for them to have that that stuff out of their body. And these people, if I had met them on the street and, and, you know, categorised them as I just categorised them to you, they would not have been people who were in my bubble. They would not have been people who had a seat at my, my dinner table. And yet their acceptance, their understanding, their perspective was just um, such an eye-opener for me and was so generous. It allowed me to realise that actually we can't always judge a book by its cover, that we need to actually learn from difference and we can learn from difference. I think the nice thing about them, though, was that they also weren't expecting me to have the same perspective as them and were able to show me how to think about things in a different way without trying to convert me to their beliefs, their systems, or their religion, etc. So it was a real gift for me. And I think as leaders, what happens is that the higher we get in leadership, the more we have people around us who either say yes, or who think like we do. Because let's face it, if we're busy, and we're running, you know, in our work and have so much to do, Having people around you who think in a similar way, who work in a similar way, who have similar beliefs makes everything faster. It makes things easier. But these women showed me that actually by having people who are different to us around us, we have different insight 
different nuance and we're able to see our blind spots in a different way. So it's really changed the way I thought about what, what it means to be a leader and who we need to, to have around us. And we need the right people around us in the playground too, don't we? Yes, we do. Because that's do. your fourth object, a playground. Now, why I, a playground? I love playgrounds. They make me smile, right? And I can see you smiling, Julia, as we speak about this as well. Because playgrounds are, number one, they're fun. They're made for fun. They're made for experiences. And who doesn't want great experiences and lots of fun in their lives? Who doesn't want that joy? And a great inclusive playground is built so that anyone can use it. You know, if you go to a great inclusive playground, there might be people who have sensory load who are sitting in quiet corners. There might be people, little young children who are just learning to walk who are using the sand, grandparents who are using some of the equipment or watching children. In the middle of the night, if you go to a playground, you will see teenagers in that playground getting up to all sorts. It works for all of us. So when we think about inclusive playgrounds, there are a lot of rules in life. There are a lot of rules at work about what good looks like, whether we're talking about universal design principles, inclusive design principles, you know, standards for this, guidelines for that, policies and practices. We had about a hundred people in Australia. I was looking at the inclusive playground movement and they just went, look, this is all too complicated. And they co-designed and they came up with three key statements around a playground to make it functional. The first is, can I get there? So you can have a beautiful playground, but if there's no public transport to the playground or if I don't have accessible transport um, or someone to take me, how do I get to that playground? The next is, can I play there? Is the equipment built so that I can play on it safely and appropriately? And the last, which I think is really, really important, is can I stay there? Which is, do I feel safe and welcomed here? Is this a place where I feel like I belong? See, I can see how that, that shapes design. Yes. How does it shape leading? Well, in two ways. I think as leaders, we need to know the right questions to ask. So, you know, whatever my managers come to me with, it helps me to deep to look at those blind spots that we might have for them or for, for me. So rather than me saying you need to do X or Y, I can ask them a question. And those three questions are really great framing questions for nearly any type of problem we have. The other thing that it helps with from a leadership perspective is to think about, well, in two ways. One is how, how am I as a leader for them? Can they get to me? Is what I do useful? And what are the qualities I'm bringing into that space as a leader? And do they want to stay with you? 100%. 100%. Do they want to stay with me? Do they feel safe? What can they say? What can't they say in front of me? And if they can't, not everyone needs to say, tell me everything about themselves, right? It's not appropriate. But also there are some things that you might not want to say to me, but is this, have we created a space an environment where there is someone you can talk to if you need to. Yeah. So one of the things that I do now is we do check-ins every every week and every day. And those check-ins are very playful. We ask people if they were an animal that day, what animal would they be? Or what what color would they be? 
And very interestingly, the more you do this exercise with people, the easier it is to see when there's a difference in their answers. So if someone is normally an animal that curls up in a corner like a mole or a bear and all of a sudden they're becoming a snake, it gives us the opportunity to ask why or what's different. It's the same with, you know, if someone's always sunshine and one day they're not, it allows us to have spaces and places for us to lead in different ways. That's a lovely one. That's a lovely one. But just occasionally yes. you get it wrong. Oh, totally. Theory you do. Totally. And you get a complaint letter. Now that's a great object. Tell me, have you still got the complaint letter? Oh, no, I burnt it. You burnt it? <laughs> How do I use this as an object? If you burnt it, See, you burnt it. Where, did you, where did you burn it? Where did you burn it? <laughs> oh, in my backyard in the bonfire. <laughs> it was very it was, therapeutic. That, it hurt you. that much. Oh, totally, totally. It really did. And, you know, I think it's, I'm really glad that we get to talk about this because when we talk about leadership, how often do we talk about the great things we do? and, and The how, trophies, the trophies, the, trophies, the badges, the exactly, certificates. The words of wisdom, you know, and I feel like most of my job, for a lot of my job, has been pretty shit, really. Most of my, my work has been in transformation and the challenge with transformation that I always forget when I start these jobs is that the fun is in the messiness but often we're dealing with changes in people's perception, in behaviours, in the way we work, and that's hard work, and it's not often happy work. Even and it's easy to get it wrong. It's well, we're always going to get it wrong. Yeah. You know, but I feel like often I I'm pretty hard on myself when I do get it wrong, and I always get it wrong. Um, so sometimes I look back and say, "Well, why on earth did I think it was going to be any different this time?" But I think that, especially for this role, it was my first role as a CEO and I'd been reading a lot, I'd been listening to a lot of podcasts, I'd been hearing words of wisdom from a lot of people and I had this complaint letter and it was a serious complaint letter, actually. It was a letter about a person who had a mental health issue and it was a significant mental health issue and they felt that the reason that they had that mental health issue was specifically because of me and more generally the um, environment that I created in that workplace. And it was so strong that they were unable to see or speak to me ever again within that workplace. And I think the thing that really upset me was number one, I wasn't expecting it. And number two, I felt like a terrible, awful person to have done that to anybody else. And I rang my mentor and said, look, I'm a terrible, awful leader. Maybe I need to resign this week um, because I've caused a lot of grief to this person. And she asked me some really interesting questions. She said, well, what did you do? I know what you didn't do. What did you do? What supports did you put in place? What conversations did you have? What could you have done better? I haven't done. And then what is your actual job? And how are you fulfilling on the job? And was this a function of that or not? And then the last thing she said to me was, 
and how many complaints have you had? And I said, oh, this is the first one. And she went, oh, that's nothing. Most of the managers I deal with have at least five or six when they're at this stage of a change process. And it hadn't occurred to me that I was only hearing on those podcasts half the story. You know, and that when we think about that idea of, you know, not being perfect, of having imposter syndrome, I think part of it is that people don't tell these stories. And part of the reason, I think, is also because there's another person involved, right? And there's dignity and we want to keep things you know, behind the boxes that they need to be kept in. But the problem is if we don't tell our stories, then everyone thinks these things are perfect and that we're not necessarily having anxiety or we're not having vibes or we're not having those headaches or any of those other things that come with leadership. And I think that sometimes as women, we might be more open to saying these things, but the more I talk to males who are also leaders, they're having the same issues. We all are. And so I think that the complaint letter and part of the reason why I burnt it was because regardless of whether I shouldn't have been in the job or not, I still felt the pain of that. And not only for me, but for the person who was on the other end of that. So let me be clear, you weren't burning the letter because you thought that the person who sent it was being unreasonable or messing about. You burnt it because you took it seriously. Yeah, and it hurt it's that I also burnt it because I had to let it go, right? And when I say that, you know, in hindsight, 100%, they said what they said because that was what they felt and that was their experience in that moment. And I think that's something that we need to always remember. It's the hardest thing I've had to learn, actually, is that just because somebody says something about me, that is, it's not my job to, to decide on whether it's right or wrong for them. It's 100% right for them. Otherwise, they wouldn't be saying that. What I choose to do with it is different. So in a way, you had a choice, didn't you? You could either burn it or frame it. 100%. I don't think I'm as evolved as enough. Sorry, I, I don't think I'm evolved enough to frame it yet. M maybe next time. <laughs> but also people might misunderstand if you framed it. So if, if your walls are covered in spray paint <laughs> from your son, yes. you could then have a framed photograph of somebody complaining about you next to you. Then everybody really would think you lived in a madhouse. Yeah, and you know, the interesting thing about that spray paint is that spray paint changed over time. So it's done with these terrible statements. If I look at that wall now, it's a wall full of spray paint still, but it, they're spray painted names of their friends and people they've had deep connections with. So I think what happens, it's got the layers behind it, but we evolve, we grow through all of these painful, knobbly, ugly bits as well. Anisha, thank you very, very much. Nobody else has brought a complaint letter as one of their objects that inevitably illustrates the, as you say, painful, knobbly bits of leading. 
which exist all the time. And it would be good if we didn't just talk about the, our triumphs as leaders, but also the moments when you are tempted to resign, but you don't. So, Manisha, thank you very, very much. Uh, I send all my love to all the listeners to this podcast and look forward to catching up again next week. Lots of love, Julia. To become part of our movement and share your thinking with us, subscribe to the podcast and join the Women Emerging group on our website at womenemerging.org. We love all of the messages you send us. Keep them coming.